Hey, what's going on, everyone? We are so glad you're choosing to take time out of your day to listen to our sermons. Our prayer for you is that these messages would not replace your belonging to a local church, but would only be supplemental in your walk with Jesus. With that being said, we love you, and we hope you enjoy the message today.
midst of our God. Amen. Well, we pray that you are jumping up off your couch and your living room or wherever you are is becoming a place of worship to our Heavenly Father, proclaiming the greatness of who He is. And again, as you are coming to us through your devices or through your computer, we welcome you to South Valley. It is a great opportunity to connect. Even though we can't be together in one place, we are together in one spirit, and the Holy Spirit dwells there and works in your life, and we know that this is a time that you can connect with God, and we love you, and we want to be part of your life, so we thank you for tuning in, and we're going to go before the Lord and give him praise, because his love is a fierce, fierce love for us, that he sent his son for each and every one of us to pay the ultimate price on the cross, so let's give praise to him for that very truth. Tide away, crashing over me, 
amen, amen.
Make some noise in your home or wherever you are tuning in. And let us come before the Lord. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we give you praise. We thank you that you are a God who is in all places. Lord, let us be reminded that you dwell among us. You speak to our hearts. You see all the things in our lives, Lord. Things that we may be holding on to that we're struggling with. Knowing that the world around us is chaotic. This world is full of problems, Lord, and we know your word tells us that. We also know that your word tells us that we will have hope and peace and joy through you, a peace that surpasses all understanding. So, Lord, this morning I pray for that peace. I pray for that peace to come into every heart, every home, every place, that we would hear you and take you in that we would not get distracted of things of this world, but we would be focused on you and what you have to say this morning, Lord. We pray, Lord, for every heart. Maybe there's a heart that seems distant from you this morning, Lord. Maybe there's a heart that doesn't even know how much you love them. We pray for those hearts, Lord, that you would speak to them and draw them to you, Lord, and a love would be rekindled or a brand new love for your son, Jesus Christ, would be found. So again, this morning, we exalt you, we worship you, we thank you for this opportunity, and we give it all to you in your name. Amen. South Valley, what's going on, you guys? Thanks so much for joining us today. Coming at you from my classroom today because we started distance learning this week, and I'm just on a bit of a lunch break, so I just wanted to make sure to take advantage of that time to get some announcements your way. So a couple of things. We are starting Rooted here pretty soon. If you're unfamiliar with Rooted, it's a 10-week small group discipleship study. It'll take place from September through part of November, and just in this virtual small group that you'll be a part of, because we will be doing this virtually, you're going to be really just leaning into seven biblical rhythms that are essential to the Christian walk and just unpacking God's word with other people who are just looking to grow in their faith and to 
look to see how they can take that next step. And so we are super excited about what God will do through that. And we would love to have anyone and everyone who's interested in taking part to actually take part in that. So we will be having signups, online signups that will be sent to you via email and social media next Sunday. We will open that up for you. And then we're also looking for people who are interested in potentially facilitating these groups. We've got a few on hand, but we're certainly looking for more. And so if you are interested, I'm going to put my email address in the bottom here. It is marcus at svcclamore.org. That's M-A-R-C-U-S at svcclamore.org. And just shoot me an email and I'll send you the facilitator application and we'll get that ball rolling for you, okay? The next thing, and I'm super excited about this as well, you guys, we are having the gathering Friday, August 21st, 7.30 p.m. right outside South Valley Community Church, right on the lawn, the parking lot area. We're going to have worship. We're going to have communion. And it's just going to be a sweet, sweet time. So we just want to remind you guys of that event that's coming up. 250 people socially distancing, please, and masks as well. Please bring something to sit in, so a chair or blanket, and just get ready for a, a wonderful night. We're going to be sending some information out as well just to prime you for that night so that you know what to expect. And you won't need to pre-register for the event. It's first come, first serve. 250 people is what we'll be able to maximize in terms of attendance for this event. And we're also looking at doing this monthly. And so if you're not able to attend this first one, hopefully down the line, as this hopefully continues, we'd be able to accommodate accordingly. All right. Thank you guys so much for joining us today. And also, we just want to give the, the Lord just a huge praise just for the many who have just continually given in terms of um, offerings each each week. And so we just want to uh, praise the Lord for that. And if you call SVCC or your church home, uh, just want to just remind you that our offering opportunity comes by way of online. So you can go to sbcclamore.org and click donate at the top and you can give your offering there or you can bring it to the church office right uh, at the office in front of the church. It's a house that's on the church lawn. All right, you guys, we are excited for what's going down. I Oh, I almost forgot. I need to let y'all know this. Pastor John would be so sad if I forgot to tell you this. If you're interested in helping to set up for the gathering on Friday, August the 21st, please let us know. Pastor John and Pastor Frank would love to have your help in setting up. So if you are interested in helping, please email either john at svcclamore.org or frank at svcclamore.org and let them know that you are interested in helping. Awesome. Okay, I'm not going to lose my announcements job. <laughs> you guys have a wonderful day. Thanks for hanging out with me for a little bit. And I hope that this service just blesses your heart. We love you and we'll see you soon. Bye now. Well, good morning. Thanks, John. Thanks, team. Uh, good new song there. And thanks, Marcus, for announcements from the safety of your own home. <laughs> How are you all doing, folks? This is, I know we're going into a really hot week as well, and it feels like summer is, well, let's just put up the Christmas tree and call it the end of 2020. What about that there? You know, it's been one of these. And actually, I got a couple of memes on the screen just to have us laugh a little bit this morning as we start. I, uh, this one here that you can see, I I'm giving up eating chocolate for a month. Sorry, bad punctuation. I'm giving up eating chocolate for a month. Uh, I feel I have been eating chocolate since March, whenever COVID began. And then for uh, all you uh, mothers who are fathers who are having to do uh, teaching at home and help your kids as 
school starts online. I thought this meme was quite funny as well. If the schools are closed for too long, the parents are going to find a vaccine before the scientists. I know some of you are pulling your hair out, if you have hair, and uh, it's just going to, hey, hang in there, guys, okay? Hopefully, uh, hopefully we'll begin to find an up curve in the coming months ahead. And if there has ever been a time where we need to figure out how to master the art of living, then it's the year 2020. And it's a challenging year. It's, it, it holds the real possibility of sucking the life out of you uh, rather than seeing that life flow through you. And so, for the past seven weeks, we've been learning how to master the art of living by learning from the brother of Jesus and his short writings at the end of the New Testament, uh, just titled his name, James, the epistle of James or the letter of James. Uh, but if you can remember, to begin with, James didn't think that Jesus was a master at anything. He wasn't a follower, a believer. But after Jesus died and rose, uh, James believed. And then maybe like 10 or 15 years later, he writes this short letter that we've been looking at at the end of the New Testament about how to live well. Uh, James was given the nickname James the Just, and he was given that nickname because of his excessive righteousness, or he lived right, and he writes a letter about how to live out the way of Jesus. And I, I can see James, and actually what's interesting is in that letter that we've been looking at, uh, he alludes over 35 times to the teachings that Jesus gave called the Sermon on the Mount. And I, I can see Jesus sitting down with His followers and, and teaching them how to love, how to, how to have wisdom. And James is standing off to the side, and he's curious, and he's doubting, and he's questioning, but he's still listening. And then one day, he gets it. He sees Jesus for who He really is, the Son of God, the giver of life, the master of life. And life is never the same again for James, the half-brother of Jesus. And, and whilst we've been teaching how to master the art of living from that short letter uh, at the end of the New Testament, uh, you can truly only, like James, master living if you come to know the master of life himself, Jesus the Christ. And so, this last talk in that series, uh, I'm going to go back to a talk that I have given over 20 times. Uh, for years, I've taught what's known as the Alpha Course, uh, a course that explores faith and who Jesus is. And as a result of that course, baptized over 790 people. Uh, and they've come to know who this Jesus is, this master of life. So, as we end the series, I want to give that talk one more time and introduce you to who Jesus, the master of life, is and why it is we can have we can put our faith in Him. Why we can be sure that following Him leads to life. And so, uh, a slightly different talk this morning, but hopefully you can follow along. And if you're interested more, then please contact the church and uh, we'll help you try to understand a little bit more about who this Jesus is and 
maybe with our rooted course or with other small courses we've got going, you can continue that search and that uh, quest to know life in the fullness. So, Jesus, you know, he was, he was born in a small, obscure village. He was a child of a peasant teenager. He didn't go to college. He didn't go to university. Perhaps he didn't even go to school. He never traveled more than 200 miles from the place he was born. He never wrote a book. He never held office in government. And at the age of 30 or 33, the, the tide of public opinion turned against him, and his closest friends abandoned him. He possessed no property. The only thing he owned were the clothes on his back. And he was crucified by Romans on a cross reserved for the lowest of the lowest common criminals. And he was buried in a borrowed tomb through the pity of an acquaintance. And yet, for over 2,000 years, Jesus has remained arguably the most important figure in the entire human race. Why? Why is Jesus Christ so important? Uh, there's an old Russian dictionary that says Jesus is a mythical figure that never existed. However, every serious historian knows that that's not true. Jesus did exist. There's a great deal of evidence that supports that claim. There's evidence outside of the New Testament, the Christian writings, uh, the second half of the Bible. Uh, the, the Roman historian uh, Tacitus talks about this figure, Jesus, directly in his writings. Suetonius speaks about him indirectly. Uh, the Jewish historian Josephus, which is rather strange since you know, Jesus was viewed as the enemy of the Jews. Uh, but in the year, you know, somewhere around about the year 50 uh, CE, so common era, Anon Denimon, uh, he wrote about his antiquities of the Jews. And speaking about the Pharisees and the Sadducees and Caiaphas and Pontius Pilate, Josephus writes these words, there was about this time Jesus a wise man, if it is lawful to call him a man, for he was a doer of wonderful works. And then Josephus goes on and speaks about his crucifixion. And then he writes, those that loved him at first did not forsake him, for he appeared to them alive again the third day, as the divine prophets had foretold these and 10,000 other wonderful things concerning him. That was written by Josephus, not a Christian, not a Gentile, but a Jew. So, there is evidence outside the New Testament for the existence of Jesus Christ, for the reporting of His crucifixion, of His life, and of His resurrection. But the majority of our evidence comes from the New Testament itself, our central source document. Now, some people will say, well, <laughs> the New Testament? 
Surely that was written such a long time ago. How do we know that what they wrote hasn't been changed and that what we now have is actually not fraudulent or misinformation? And the answer to that is that we know very accurately through a science, and that science is called textual criticism. And this is the rule that we can place upon all literature from antiquity, all source documents. And the integrity of any ancient writing is determined by the number of documented manuscripts or fragments of manuscripts that we can examine. So, for instance, there are only nine or ten good manuscripts about Caesar's Gallic Wars. Uh, the oldest of those manuscripts is a copy that dates 900 years after Caesar's time. Yet, no historian, and none of us, have any serious doubts about the reality of Caesar as a historical person or the integrity of the text that he wrote. So, Professor F.F. F. Bruce who was professor of theology and religious studies at Manchester University, took this science, he was the first evangelical to do this, and he took the science of textual criticism and he used it to gauge the accuracy and the integrity of the New Testament. And the way this science or this rule works is something like this here. It's on your screen, okay? the shorter the time span between the original document and the earliest text that we have, and the more text or the more copies we have, the more we can be sure about the origin, the accuracy, and the reliability of what we're reading. So, let me put up on the screen a chart. And from this chart, you will see how strong the evidence is for the reliability of the New Testament as a trustworthy document. So, look at the chart. And you'll see on it ancient works, the date of the earliest manuscript, and then the total manuscripts. So, uh, many of you will know about Plato's writings. So, Plato was writing in the 400 BCs. Uh, the earliest manuscript was the 3rd century BC and we have a total of 238 manuscripts. Or Pliny, who wrote a lot of history uh, in that first century AD, earliest manuscripts, the fifth century, and we have about 200 plus total manuscripts. And then let's jump down. I mean, some of you have maybe even read some of Homer's Iliad. But look at the New Testament. Ancient work, the earliest manuscript was 125 AD, so that is if Jesus was to die at the age of 30 or 33. That's just under 100 years later. And the total number of manuscripts, 5,856. I just… We have sufficient evidence, both outside and inside the New Testament, to be sure that Jesus existed. F.F. Uh, F. Bruce 
quotes one of the most senior textual critic experts who's an authority on this rule, a man called F.J.A. Hart, and he said these words, in the variety and the fullness of the evidence in which it rests, the text of the New Testament stands absolutely and unapproachably alone amongst ancient prose writings. Now, there's more we could say about this. I don't want to labor this point, uh, but the concrete foundation of the reliability of the New Testament as a text is vital because this becomes much of our source document about who this Jesus is that we're encouraging you to follow as the master of life. Now, we need to ask the all-important question, who is Jesus? And much of our answers come from within this well-evidenced New Testament, a document we can believe with good faith. Martin Suskinski, who wrote The Last Temptations of Christ, said that he produced the film to show that Jesus was a real human being. Well, I don't think there's any doubt. There's that, that's not an issue. Jesus was a real human being. He had a human body. He became tired. He experienced hunger. He had human emotions. He expressed love and sadness and joy and disappointment. He had a human experience of birth, of growing up, of temptation, of working, of obeying His parents. He, he experienced bereavement and suffering and rejection and death. Every serious historian would accept that Jesus was a human and for many today, that's as far as they go, and they stop at that. Uh, Billy Connolly, a Scottish comedian, many of you know him from movies, he spoke for many people when he said, I can't believe in Christianity, but I think Jesus was a wonderful man, a great religious teacher. And he said that partly due to how the Catholic Church… <clears throat> sorry. <clears throat> He said that partly due to how the Catholic Church treated his father after his mother divorced his father. But you can't say that. People want to say that, but you can't say that for one simple reason. If you say he was a wonderful, great teacher, then you're agreeing that what he taught and said was great and wonderful. But what he taught and said was that he was more than a man. He was the Son of God. And therefore, if you accept him as a great teacher, you have to accept that he was who he said he was, and he said he was more than a man. And if you say, well, I don't believe he was more than a man, I don't believe he was the Son of God, then you have to say he was not a great teacher, he was a lunatic. It's either or. There's not this middle road that you can take with regards to Jesus. He was either a fool or a lunatic, or he was who he claimed to be. Let me read a passage from the New Testament. It's in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 16, verse 13. And uh, in, this, in this story, uh, Jesus asks His followers, who do people say the Son of Man is? In other words, who do people say that I am? 
And they replied, some say John the Baptist, a prophet, some say Elijah, a famous prophet, and, and some say uh, Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. But what about you? Jesus asked, who do you say I am? And Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. In other words, the disciples say when asked the question, who, who, who do you say I am? They say, well, well, some people are saying that you're a great religious teacher, like a prophet. And then he points to Peter and he says, well, who do you say I am? Not who other people say I am. Who do you say I am? And Peter says, you're the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus asks Peter, you have been with me for a long time, you know, uh, who do you say I am? And the question is, was Peter right? What's the evidence to support the claim that he's the Son of God? Was Jesus just a great moral teacher? Was he just a compassionate miracle worker? Was he, was he a misunderstood revolutionary? Who did he think he was? And what's interesting is Jesus undoubtedly thought that he was more than a man. He clearly thought himself to be God. What he said about himself, what he allowed others to claim for him, this is the central Christian belief. And it's, who is God? And it's answered by looking at Jesus because Jesus is the exact representation of God. He's fully God. That's what Christianity teaches. Now, Jesus could be wrong. Many people have claimed to be God. And they've, they're nothing less than mad people, even possessed, or the devil of hell himself. But we rush to ask the all-important question, what evidence is there to support what Jesus claimed to be the Son of God? And for the last part of this message, as we pull this series over, I want to just look at some of the evidence quickly. Uh, first of all, there are His teachings. These are recorded for us in the New Testament, a document with immense credible evidence. And in these teachings, we find much of what we're looking for, uh, but His teachings center on Himself. Now, this is interesting because most religious teachers point away from themselves and say, don't look at me, look at God. But Jesus, in pointing to God, pointed at himself, and he clearly taught, if you see me, you've seen God. He said, I am the way to God. And they picked up stones to stone him, and they wanted to cast him off a cliff. Eventually, his claim to be God led him to be charged with blasphemy and being crucified. And now, his teachings were not abstract philosophical arguments. His words were not incidental additions to life. They are foundational words. When you read the words of Jesus, they are words to build your life upon. In the teachings of Jesus, we hear him say, I'm the bread of life. I can, I can fill your hunger. 
Not your natural hunger for food because you're hungry because you didn't eat breakfast, but that hunger for meaning and purpose and an and, and understanding of why you exist. Uh, people today are, are walking around in despair or disillusionment or, or a sense of darkness in a cloud, and Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Uh, this is the common response of people who come to faith in Jesus for the first time. They'll say, it's as if a light has been turned on, and they see things clearer and brighter now than they ever did before. J.T. Fisher, a leading psychiatrist at Queen's University, concluded that if you were to survey all the psychological data that the discipline of psychology has to offer and boil it down to one essential and perfect prescription for mental health, it would be the Sermon on the Mount, the most famous sermon that Jesus ever preached. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 5, 6, and 7. Jesus' teachings have been the foundation of our entire civilization in the West, many of our laws. It's, it, it, you know, if, if you look at society, we've made progress in every field of science and philosophy, and, and yet no one in 2,000 years has ever improved upon the teachings of Jesus Christ. These are the kinds of words you would expect God to speak. But not just His teachings, there were also His works. Jesus said that the miracles He performed, and many are recorded in the Gospels, the first four books of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that He says many of those miracles He performed uh, were in themselves the evidence that the Father is in me and I in the Father, John chapter 10. He, he, was, he was quite an incredible guy to have around. He, he could turn water into wine and he could control the elements and he carried out the most remarkable healings and he set people free from evil forces. But it's not just his miracles. What about his love for the loveless and for the lepers and for the prostitutes? And even as they tortured him on a cross, he cried out, Father, forgive them. They were his works. Now, there was also his character. Former British Lord Chancellor in charge of all the law courts, Lord Hailsham, in his autobiography, he describes how the person of Jesus came alive to him when he was at university. And he wrote these words, listen in, the first thing we must learn about him is that we should have been absolutely entranced by his company. Jesus was irresistibly attractive as a man. What they crucified was a young man, vital, vibrant, full of life and the joy of it, the Lord of life Himself, and even more, the Lord of laughter, someone so utterly attractive that people followed Him for the sheer joy and fun of it. It's kind of sad that we portray Jesus sometimes as a rather washed-out, never-smiling seer or guru. Or in maybe the image you have of Jesus in your mind is possibly more like Osama bin Laden than someone full of life and joy and peace. It was his character. It was a compelling, attractive character. Then there is his fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies. 
Over 300 prophecies were spoken over 500 years by different voices, including the fulfilling of 48 prophecies in a single day. Dr. Peter Stoner, who is former chair of mathematics and astronomy in Pasadena, calculated the odds, the odds of one biblical prophecy about the life of Jesus coming true would be one in 400 million. What about eight prophecies about the life of Jesus coming true? That would be one times ten to the power of 17. That's a figure with 17 zeros behind it. Yet on the day that Jesus died, 48 prophecies about His life and His person came true. That's odds of 1 times 10 to the power of 157. And throughout His lifetime, 332 distinct Old Testament prophecies prophesied between five to eight hundred years before Jesus was born were fulfilled in the life of Jesus. The, the odds of that? <laughs> Not enough zeros to make that happen. Was he just a clever con man? <laughs> you know, the place of his death was predicted. You could maybe figure that out. The place of his burial was predicted. Maybe you could fix that one up. <laughs> but in Micah chapter 5, the place of his birth was predicted. <laughs> I don't think he could make that one happen. And then finally, there is the resurrection. The resurrection from the dead of Jesus Christ is the cornerstone of Christianity. If Jesus had not risen from the dead, we probably would never have heard of Him. But the resurrection changes everything. Was His death a sham and His resurrection merely a hoax? To know the pain and the agony of crucifixion and all that, it, is, it would be medically naive to suggest that Jesus just swooned on the cross. Was His body really absent from the tomb? Maybe the disciples stole the body away. Well, apart from the record of His post-resurrection appearances, and He appeared to more than 500, I mean, one disciple hallucinating might be perceivable, but 500 people hallucinating? The disciples who some accused of stealing the body, then went on in many cases to be martyred for their faith in Jesus Christ. Why would you go to a painful death if you knew it was all just a myth and that you were involved in inventing the myth? People die for beliefs they know to be true. Few ever die for something they know to be false. And what about the many skeptics that subsequent to the resurrection believed, including his half-brother James, that we've been reading about for the last seven or eight preachers? 
And then there is the experiential test. You know, throughout the last 2,000 years, millions and millions of people have professed that Jesus Christ has changed their lives. I'm one of those people. People who attribute the change in their lives, in their actions, in their habits, in their desires, in their purpose, in their guilt, to knowing the risen Jesus Christ as the living Son of God. So, let me conclude, because there are really only three realistic possibilities about who Jesus is. Number one, either He knew that what He was saying was untrue, and therefore He was an imposter, and an evil one at that. Or number two, He didn't know that He was lying, and therefore He was deluded, better called mad. But when you look at the whole weight of His teaching. If you look at His works, His character, His prophetic fulfillments, His resurrection, the suggestion that He is mad or evil are illogical, maybe even absurd, certainly unbelievable. And they lend the strongest possible support to the third position. Jesus was a man whose identity was God. Listen to C.S. Lewis. We are faced then with a frightening alternative. Either Jesus was and is just what He said, or else He was insane or something worse. However strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that He was and is God. What are you going to do with Jesus? You're going to follow Him? You're going to trust Him? You're going to place your faith within Him? Now, I know you could be saying, well, go, but that's all good. I like the theory. But boy, when I look at Christians, they don't look like they've mastered life. They're angry, they're unkind, they're falling out, they're judgmental. Why, why would I want to be a Christian? Listen to the words of Leo Tolstoy, the 19th century Russian right, no, no, novelist. He says these words, attack me. I do this myself, but attack me rather than the path I follow and which I point out to anyone who asks me where I think it lies. If I know the way home and I'm walking along it drunkenly, is it less the right way because I'm staggering from side to side? Tolstoy was a Christ follower, a believer. You may look at Christians and not see much evidence in them of the love and the joy and the patience and the kindness and the gentleness that the master of life shows. 
For that, I'm sorry. I know it confuses many people who are thinking about becoming Christians, and they look at Christians and they think, I don't want to be like that. But the question you need to answer is not whether or not I and others are walking it right, but is the road that we are walking on the right road? You will be disappointed with Christians. But if Jesus is truly the Son of God, there will be no disappointment with Him. And He said, I am come that you might have life and more life than you can contain. He is the master of life. And He invites you to follow Him, to trust Him, to place your faith within Him. Don't so much judge Christianity by Christians, but examine Jesus and place your faith in Him. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, that there is an invitation to know eternal life to master the art of living. And it's embodied in the master of life himself, Jesus the Christ. And the invitation of Scripture and from you is that we place our faith and trust in him and we come to know that life. And I pray for everyone listening that they may, number one, examine the evidence and before they write Jesus off, make sure they've studied it well. And I pray that as they read the Scriptures and discover who Jesus is, that they'll enter into a living, eternal relationship with that same master of life, and that they would come to know eternal life. May that take place at this time of COVID and despair and worry to know that He is worthy of our faith and He will lead us to life. I make this prayer in the name of Christ, the giver of all life. Amen. May God richly bless you.